Psalm chapter 19 is going to be our teaching today as we're going through the Psalms. The theme in this chapter is the glory of God, praise, grace, and prayer. As the great late Matthew Henry said of this Psalm 19, There are two excellent books which the great God has published for the instruction and edification of the children of men. This psalm treats of them both and recommends them both to our diligent study. First, the book of creatures, in which we may easily read the power and Godhead of the Creator, verses 1 through 6. And second, the book of the scriptures. Which makes, us, which makes known to us the will of God concerning our duty. He shows the excellency and usefulness of that book, verses 7 through 11, and then teaches us how to improve it, verses 12 through 14. Father, we thank you for bringing us together again, all of your saints, on the Lord's Day. We thank you for the guests that came here. Uh, to revisit us. We pray that you would be glorified with this message, that Christ would be exalted. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would teach us through your word of God, that you would help us, and that you would strengthen us, prepare our hearts and minds for this message. In Christ's name, amen. Now again, as Matthew Henry said, I will divide this teaching today just as Matthew Henry did. In verses 1 through 6 will be the book of creatures, as they used to call them that, and they display the glory of God. The secondly will be verses 7 through 11. This is the book of scriptures and how his word shows his grace. And thirdly, verses 12 through 14 is David's prayer for grace and how to improve. Beginning with verses 1 through 6, David said this, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament sheweth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night sheweth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all of the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them hath he set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. And rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. He going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Since we recently went through the eighth psalm, which spoke greatly of God's creation, the verses the first six verses of this psalm today also speak greatly of God's creation, but we're going rather than repeat of much of what I taught about or what God taught about in creation several sermons ago. Today we're going to take a a view of his creation from a different angle. In verse 1, David said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament sheweth his handiwork. I, I, I hope I don't share my personal stories too much, but I think sharing the gospel in the streets is important. I don't share stories, per se, or stories that I hear on Christian radio. I I really strive to share stories that I've experienced or ones that you've told me you've experienced. And and there's nothing more insightful and, and impactful than breaking into a crowd against their will without their permission in the public and declaring, the heavens declare the glory of God. 
especially if you're at a vacation place or a place where tourists are enjoying God's creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. That's a great way to open a street sermon, an open-air sermon. Oftentimes in the scriptures, we will see the mention of God's creation through the heavens, through the earth, and a lot through the ocean. No doubt David places a preeminence of heaven by first mentioning heavens in this passage. The heavens here is the Hebrew word shamayim, which speaks of the sky, the visible heavens, the abode of the stars, the visible universe, or the atmosphere. These heavens declare the glory of God. They declare the glory of God. That's why God created them, to declare his glory, to beseech his glory, and to let us have something to enjoy ourselves by his providence. He said, the firmament showeth his handiwork. The word firmament here is the Hebrew word rakiyah, which means the expanse, as some of your translations will already properly say, or the visible arch of the sky, or the extended surface. Uh, last week, again, I had the, the privilege of going so far out to sea that I could no longer see the land. And had I turned around, blindfolded myself, and opened my eyes, I would have never been able to know which way is the west coast. Because it was so beautiful to be out there so far. And what you can see is this expanse, this rakia. As you can see, again, as I shared in chapter 8, you can actually see the roundness of the ocean, the roundness of planet Earth. And I hope there's no flat Earth theorists in here. The Earth is round. You can see it through the expanse, especially when you're somewhere out in the middle of the ocean when you can't even see land. The glory of God is declared by this expanse and by his heavens and by his seas. When David referred to God's handiwork here, he was not minimizing God as a, as a handyman, like the handyman can. No, this is the amazing, skillful work of God's providential, sovereign hands as he put his creation together. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said this, In the expanse above us, God flies. Look at that, God flies. In the expanse above us, God flies, as it were, his starry flag to show that the king is at home and hangs out his estachon that atheists may see how he despises their denunciations of him. He who looks up to the firmament and then writes himself down as an atheist brands himself at the same moment as an idiot or a liar. Close quote. It's not unbiblical to call somebody an idiot or a liar. Those are two biblical words that we can actually use when it's appropriate, as long as our heart's right when we use those words. I enjoy, again, and recently I was preaching to a crowd standing in a long line out on the highways and hedges, right where Jesus said to go. And I, as I was preaching, this guy yelled, There is no God! And he started mocking me and heckling me. And I, as soon as he was done, I said, Sir, thank you so much. You have just proven to me that God's word is so accurate. And the fool asked why 
And I answered, because it says in Proverbs 1 that only a fool says there's no God. And sir, you are a fool. And you also are mocking God. And the Bible says that the end times, the mockers will come. Therefore, this fool and this mocker and this liar actually was proving to the crowd that the scriptures are absolutely without error. In verse 2, it says, Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. From one day to the next, each night passed over the wondrous tale of creation to the next. Last week we saw the importance to dive deep into the wells of mercy, God's well of mercies. And now Spurgeon said of verse 2, Oh, to drink often at this celestial well and learn to utter the glory of God. In the next verses, we see how God's creation literally cries out in silence and sometimes audibly of their creator. In verse 3, he said, There is no speech, no language where their voice is not heard. Every so-called atheist will be without excuse. Even those that believe that there is a creator will be out without excuse, including myself. In the next verse, in verse 3, it says, There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Yesterday was my 29th birthday, my 29th anniversary of being born again by the grace of God, November 14, 1991. And ever since day one of my salvation, I try to be graceful with this, but throughout the decades, I could never understand why apologists or creationists would commit their entire life and ministries to prove to atheists that God exists. I could never understand that. Though there is a time to defend creation as a creationist, and there is a time to rightfully defend the faith, to give them, to, to, to give them an answer for the hope that lies in us, uh, apologetics. But God's already cried out to them of his creation. And some almost seem as if Their ability to reason with, to debate or argue, is more important or more powerful and more intellectual than God, his word, and his creation. As Dr. Vody Bauckham said, is your apologetics calling God a liar? Because God's voice cries out in his creation, the text is saying right here. And God also said in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, listen to this. We actually did a teaching on this about a year ago here. For the wrath of God is revealed. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. These people are suppressors. They're suppressing the truth in their own unrighteousness. That's why they don't want to say that God created these things. They're suppressing the truth in their own righteousness Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, that God has shown it to them. God has already shown it to them. We can't convince them any better than God has. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools 
and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. That's a powerful passage. <clears throat> I love sharing that with, with those who don't believe in a creator or a designer. The Bible is clear in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation. It is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. Spurgeon said this, Every man may hear the voices of the stars. Many are the languages of terrestrials and celestials. There is but one. And that one may be understood by every willing mind. The lowest heathen are without excuse, yet they do not discover the invisible things of God in the works which he has made. Sun, moon, and stars are God's traveling preachers. They are apostles upon their journey, confirming those who regard the Lord, and judges on circuit condemning those who worship idols. Imagine describing the, the stars as God's flag waving in the sky. That they are God's traveling preachers, God's traveling apostles declaring the glory of God. That millions of them he's even named. There's many stars that have came towards planet Earth that had they hit our Earth, we would have all been destroyed. But God stops them before that happens. And perhaps maybe when the world ends, maybe that's what he'll do. Maybe he'll use the hands of a man with a nuclear button. Maybe he'll use the stars and the meteors to destroy planet Earth. We don't know, but the Bible does say one day planet Earth will be destroyed with fervent heat. But, dear church, we must go out into the world and tell these people this good news. And give them the bad news why they need the good news. As it says in Romans 10, how then shall they call on him, though creation is important, but, it's, but we, it's, it's, it's nothing without the gospel and the law. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall we, they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace. And bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So then comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need to start putting more tracks out there in the back next to those little cards. The gospel is more important than those little cards that, that we ordered and put back there. And we can keep replenishing our bags and pockets and purses with tracks to give out every day. That's the, the least way, the least, that's the, probably the most simplest way to share the gospel. Just hand somebody a track and just trust they'll read it or maybe engage in a conversation about the track. I love just telling people I've got some good news for you. Here's some good news. And right now, everybody wants good news, don't they? Everybody does. Atheists want good news. And I give them good news. And it's very rare that somebody says, no, thank you. They take that. And some will ask, what is the good news? Do you have a moment? And then you share with them. Next in verses 4 through 5, David said, Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. 
In them hath he set a tabernacle for the son, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. This phrase here, their line in the Hebrew, is the Hebrew word malah. Figuratively, it's a string or a ruler or something like a measuring stick. I think somewhere in my house, our house, my wife might still have a yardstick. Well, she might have broken on me a few times. Uh, actually, she's never done that. But we, we have a yardstick somewhere. But that's what this Hebrew word is saying. Figuratively, it's a string or a ruler or a measuring stick to measure. This phrase and their words in the Hebrew means their line. In other words, the line either speaks to us or the line is an utterance of words. God's heavenly creation above speaks and teaches us in audible silence. As another said, to gracious souls, the voices of the heavens are more influential far. They feel the sweet influences of the Pleiades and are drawn towards their God their father God by the bright hands of Orion. Close quote. Speaking of philosophers hundreds and hundreds of years ago. Many decades ago, as you remember, weddings rightfully placed an emphasis on the bridegroom. As the groom was to be the the head of their new relationship and the head of their new home. And today, it's unfortunately, it's all about the bride and the dress. $10,000 for a dress, without hesitation. And it's very little about the groom, the bridegroom anymore. But in this verse, he uses the analogy, the next verse uses the analogy of the husbandry, like a bridegroom, the husbandry to describe the poor order of everything in the sky above. That there's a husbandry, a bridegroom of the order of everything in the skies. In verse 5 he said, which is the bridegroom, speaking of all the above again, all of the above and all in the previous four passages, uh, verses, he said, which is a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. He compares the strong, powerful son, S-U-N, to a bridegroom at a wedding, a strong man. And Christ is the bridegroom of his church. You see the relationship there? Spurgeon said this, Jesus, like a son, dwells in the midst of revelation, tabernacling among men in all his brightness, rejoicing as the bridegroom of his church to reveal himself to men and like a champion to win unto himself renown. Close quote. We get here early often. I was out there about 40 minutes before services to start. Sitting out on the cement table out there, found a spot in the sun, sun, S-U-N, shining upon my face while I'm studying and praying. And I'm thinking of the sun, S-O-N, the son of God, that that sun reveals the son of God. It reveals God the Father. As it says in Colossians 1, referring to the preeminence of Christ, that that Christ created these things before he was even born. Think about that. The preeminence of Christ. Before he was even born, he was a creator of all of these beautiful things. Spurgeon also said this, A bridegroom comes forth sumptuously apparelled. 
his face beaming with the joy which he imparts to all around, such by with a mighty emphasis in the rising sun. David said that this bridegroom, or the son, rejoices, rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. The sun shines, the sun shines the glory upon Christ. The sunshine from the sun shines the glory of God. As one author said, no other creature yields such joy to the earth as her bridegroom the sun, and none, whether they be a horse or an eagle, can for an instant compare in swiftness with that heavenly champion, but all his glory is but the glory of God, even the sun shines in light borrowed from the great father of lights. End of quote. Moving on to verse 6. His going forth is from the end of the earth, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. It's only by God's grace, by God's providence, and or decree that he allows earth to spin on its access. He's got the whole world in his hands. Yes, he does. And planet Earth is spinning. Imagine like as if he was holding planet Earth with the finger of God as Earth spins on an axis, figuratively speaking, on the finger of God. And it spins on the axis so that we may enjoy the benefits of the sun, S-U-N, and the light and the heat of the sun, as well as getting a break from the sun from the severe heat and the rays of the sun. As one author said, he bears his light to the boundaries of the solar heavens, traversing the zodiac with steady motion, denying his light to none who dwell within his range. David said this also, there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. Nothing is hidden from the heat of the sun. Today, liberal politicians laughably are trying to spend billions of our dollars, our hard-earned money, to stop global warming. And the Bible says God will not be mocked. It is a mockery against God to think they can change the temperature, that God's holy, sovereign hand is on that thermostat. And to think that a piece of legislation or an executive order from any president can actually stop the heat from coming if God decrees it. As it says in Psalm 147, 15 through 18, He, God, spreads snow like wool. Look out our windows. Whole walls, open glass, beautiful. There's still some snow from last week. God did that. He spreads snow like wool. He scatters frost like ashes. He throws his hailstones like crumbs. Who can withstand his cold? He unleashes his winds and the waters flow. Thus saith the word of God. As A.W. Pink said in his book, The Sovereignty of God, that's not only a must read, it's actually a must keep. Most of my books I read over the years, I actually give away because I don't want to have a garage full of books. But this is one of those ones that's a keeper. I didn't just read it many times. I kept it. But Pink said this, What a declaration is this? The changes of the elements are beneath God's sovereign control. It is God who withholds the rain. 
And it is God who gives the rain, when he wills, where he wills, as he wills, and on whom he wills. Close quote. If I were a congressman or a senator fighting against that, any bill that would fight against global warming or global chilling, I would tell those people to chill out and I would say something similar to that in my speech. Plus, I would read them all the verses that talk about climate, that God changes the climate. It says in Amos 4, 7 through 10, I also withhold the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. I sent rain on one city, but no rain on another. One field received rain while a field with no rain withered. I struck you with blight and mildew and locusts devoured your many gardens and vineyards, your fig trees and olive trees. I sent plagues like those of Egypt. I killed your young man and the sword, thus says the Lord. He even sent plagues. There's nothing that our current president could do or a future president, whoever it's going to be, can do to stop a plague that God has sent our way. Again, God will not be mocked. We need to embrace these trials and pray, Lord, how can I learn from this? Obviously, he's judging our land somehow, some way. It says in Job 37, 10 through 13, The breath of God produces ice, and the broad waters become frozen. He loads the clouds with moisture. He scatters his lightning through them. At his direction, they swirl around over the face of the whole earth to do whatever he commands them. He brings the clouds to punish men or to water his earth and show his love. He brings clouds to punish, and he can even bring water to show his love. Let us never take the weather for granted. It says in Psalm 135, 6-7, Let his word speak once more. The Lord does whatever he pleases throughout all heaven and earth, and on the seas and in their depths. He causes the clouds to ride over the earth. He sends the lightning with the rain and releases the wind from his storehouses. A.W. A. W. Pink continued to say this again in his book, The Sovereignty of God, and I quote, Truly, then, God governs the elements, earth and wind, fire and rain, hell and snow, stormy winds and angry seas, all obey his omnipotent word and fulfill his sovereign pleasure. Therefore, when we complain about the weather, we are in reality murmuring against God. Close quote. As one scholar said, Above, beneath, around, the heat of the sun exercises an influence. The bowels of the earth are stored with the ancient produce of the solar rays. And yet, and even yet, earth's inmost caverns fill their power. Where light is shut out, yet heat and other more subtle influences find their way. Moving on to the third part, it's going to be verses 7 through 11. But the next one's going to be the book of scriptures, verses 7 through 11, and how his word shows his grace. Beginning with verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, more, much more fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. In verse 7, he said, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The law here is speaking of the Torah, especially the Decalogue or the Pentateuch. Spurgeon said this, The law of the Lord is perfect, by which he means not merely the law of Moses, but also the doctrine of God, the whole run and whole rule, sacred writ. End of quote. Matthew Henry said, The law of the Lord is perfect. It is perfectly free from all corruption, perfectly filled and all good, and perfectly fitted for the end for which it is designed, and it will make the man of God perfect. 2 Timothy 3.17 Nothing is to be added or taken away from it. It is of use to convert the soul, to bring us back to ourselves, to our God, to our duty, for it shows us our sinfulness and misery in our departures from God and the indispensable necessity of our return to him. End of quote. David said that the law is for converting the soul. Only through God's law, through God's word in his gospel, can a man's soul be saved, God willing, if God predestines them to be his elect. Our church, our ministries, evangelism, and efforts must be God, Christ, and word-centered, word of God-centered, lest we commit idolatry. He said the testimony of the Lord is sure. Today, many professing Christians rely too much on the testimonies of the works of their favorite scholars, their favorite books, authors, speakers, pastors, etc., but they are all with air, including myself. But the word of God And the law of God is perfect. But the testimony of our Lord is sure, it says here. God's testimony is perfect. It is sure. It is pure. God's testimony and his word are without error again. That is why I've said many times that my primary mentors are God, Christ, and the men of the scriptures, as well as the word of God. And today, in the postmodern era, my mentors at large are old dead men. Old dead men on the shelves. Dead men that have went to glory, who died well, who didn't lose their testimony, who didn't stay, stray from sound doctrine and teaching. Matthew Henry said, The testimony of the Lord, which witnesses for him to us, is sure, incontestably and inviolably sure. What we may give credit to, may rely upon, and may be confident, it will not deceive us. It is sure discovery of the divine truth, a sure direction in the way of duty. End of quote. David also said that the law makes wise the simple. The law, Lord willing, will make a man humble. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. Humble enough to realize that he is a simple, foolish, seducible man, as I am. And when he humbles himself, he then becomes a teachable man or woman. Verse 8. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. 
The word of God is undefiled and without dross. It is perfect and pure. Spurgeon said, as a physician gives the right medicine and a counselor the right advice, so more does the book of God. And when a man is truly converted, he will fear God. Verse 9. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Here's a powerful passage in Proverbs 1, the first seven verses. You all know the last verse. Verse 7, but it says in verse 1, The Proverbs of Solomon, the son of David, king of Israel, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive the words of understanding, to receive the instruction of wisdom, justice, judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, to the young man knowledge and discretion. A wise man will hear and increase learning. Add a man of understanding, will attain wise counsel, to understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Verse 10. Verse 10 says, More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Christian people will value and, des- and, and desire the word of God more than the finest gold, more than the tastiest foods, and more than any other of the books in their library. Henry said, The word of God received by faith is sweet to the soul, sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. The pleasures of sense are the delight of brutes, and therefore debase the great soul of man. The pleasures of religion are the delight of angels, and exalt the soul. End of quote. Verse 11, Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there is a great reward. Once the lost sinner is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, there are great benefits for obeying God's word, his gospel, and his law. Much great benefits. Next in verses 12 through 14 is David's prayer for grace and how to improve. Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. In verse 12 he says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. We all have committed many sins, but we've also all committed many sins that we're not even aware of. Therefore, it is a good thing to occasionally ask the Lord in prayer, Lord, reveal any hidden sins in my heart or mind that I may not be aware of. Lord, reveal sins to me that I'm not even aware of. Any secret faults that I may have, that the old devil has put in my path that I'm not even aware of. Henry said this, We are guilty of many sins which, through our carelessness and partiality to ourselves, we are not aware of. Many we have been guilty of which we have forgotten, so that when we have been ever so particular in the confession of sin, we must conclude with an etc. And may I add, for me, may I include... 
when I ask him to reveal my prayers and confess my prayers, and when he reveals prayers, the hidden sins to me, that I may say, etc., etc., etc. I remember the first time when I ever heard of the word fornicator. It was in the 1980s. I kid you not, folks. This is not a joke. This is serious. The preacher mentioned the word fornicator. I wasn't even saved at this time. And I thought, what's a fornicator? He said, the fornicators will not inherit the kingdom of God. That, that, I, well, I want to know what a fornicator is. And to be honest with you, in my absolute ignorance, I leaned over to the woman who I did not know and asked her, what is a fornicator? Yeah, and that woman's face turned so red. I, I knew that there was something wrong. Because, but the preacher said it, so it must not be a dirty word. It sounds like a car part, like a carburetor or something, but it's a fornicator. And had he waited just a little, wait about another two minutes, I would have heard him do an exposition of the text. I knew what a liar was, a drunkard, extortioner. I was a druid. I, I knew all of that stuff, but what's a fornicator? And then when he expounded on the text, I realized I am a fornicator. And boy, I tell you, I feel, I feel bad for that woman. I, I was so embarrassed that I didn't even apologize to her. I figured they would have sent, I didn't even, what's an usher? Are those guys bouncers? I mean, I don't know, maybe they'll excommunicate me for asking her that question. But Henry said this, All that truly repent of their sins and have them pardoned are in care not to relapse into sin, nor to return again to folly, as appears by their prayers which concur with David's year. In David's prayer here, we see several things. Let's go over them. First, we see David's petition. Keep me from committing willful, presumptuous sin. We should pray that the Lord keeps us from all forms of sin, obviously the sin of omission, the sins of commission, but especially presumptuous sin. A presumptuous sin are the sins that are very heinous and dangerous. They're the sins that mostly offend our God. There's a lie out in the church, I should say out in Christendom, that all sin is equal to all sin. But that's not true. There are presumptuous sins that are especially offensive to God. And Timothy warned, or Paul warned Timothy, that we should be careful of those sins because they will sear our conscience like a hot iron. We get so addicted and we commit our presumptuous sins so much that it offends God and God finally lets us go and we sear our conscience like a hot iron. If we were not saved, we'll become reprobates. If we were saved, God will punish us even in our salvation. Furthermore, David and we must pray, let none of these sins have dominion over me. Oh Lord, let those sins not have dominion over my life. What a great prayer. I love Psalm 51. In other words, help me refrain or help me, help me from repeating or allowing particular presumptuous sins to keep creeping back into my life. Though we're still going to sin until the day we're in the box. Secondly, we see David's plea. Here's a paraphrase of David's plea. David was basically saying, So shall I be upright, Lord. I shall appear upright. I shall preserve the evidence and comfort of my uprightness. And I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Thirdly, being proactive. We see that being proactive, asking the Lord to help us prevent from committing sin before we sin. 
Now, there's a lot of people going to say, Brother Bill, Pastor Bill, that doesn't sound very Calvinistic. You sound like a Pelagian there. You sound like an Armenian there. There's absolutely nothing wrong with a Calvinist or a Reformed theologian asking the Lord to keep sin out of your life. Asking the Lord to keep temptation out of your life that will turn into sin. Nothing wrong with being proactive. Oftentimes we're only reactive. Oftentimes I'm only reactive. I feel guilty. I feel awful in my sin. And I confess it to the Lord, even knowing He knows about it, because He tells us to. 1 John 1, 9, for Christians, that if we confess our sins to the Lord Jesus Christ, He is faithful and just to cleanse us of all of our sins and all of our unrighteousness. But we ought not to always wait only until we get busted, or get caught, or get convicted by the Holy Spirit. Or that we're grieving the Holy Spirit. We also ought to proactively pray, Lord, keep me from that sin. Keep that person out of my life. Keep me from watching that. Keep me from opening that. Keep me from listening to that. In other words, Lord, give me victory over this sin. Lord, give me victory over this sin. I'm not boasting in myself. I'm boasting in the Lord here, but he gave me victory over profanity. I thank God for that because it's not a good witness. In verse 14, he said this, though I'm still a sinner, by the grace of God, so go I. Verse 14, he said, let the words of my mouth and the mediation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. Oh, there's so much more to say about that verse. Henry said this, Observe the connection of this with what goes before. He prays to God to keep him from sin and then begs he would accept his performances for if we favor our sins, we cannot expect God that he should favor us or our services. He won't favor our ministries. He won't favor our services. Psalm 68, 18 If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. If we regard sin in our life, did you know, church, that God does not hear those prayers? In Ephesians 5, it talks particularly of the husband, that he's to have a right relationship with his wife. If he doesn't, it will hinder. That sin of not having the right relationship with his wife will actually hinder his prayers to the Lord. So, in closing, in the sermon, our hearts should be affected by the excellency and purity of the Word of God. We should be affected with the evil and weight of our own sins and the danger of our sins because of our sin, and that God's elect has a Savior, Jesus Christ, who is willing to accept our confessions because He paid the sacrifice as the Lamb of God. He's willing to accept our repentance, which comes from God, and he's willing to intercede on our behalf. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this sermon. We ask now, Lord, that you would minister to us as we eat of your bread and your cup and your holy communion. In Jesus' name, amen.